Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. In 1916, the blood-spattered stalemate of World War I had dragged on for two years. Millions were already dead. While the vast majority of casualties were caused in the pock-marked land of the Eastern and Western Fronts, World War I's most significant battle took place at sea, the North Sea. While most people think of trenches, rolling artillery barrages, massed machine gun fire, barbed wire, poison gas, and the world's first tanks and aerial dogfights, what changed the course of the war were gigantic dreadnought battleships. The Battle of Jutland was the shuddering earthquake that released the seismic tension of the Anglo-German naval arms race of the last decade. Ever since the Royal Navy launched the all-big-gun battleship HMS Dreadnought in 1906, both countries had been caught in a headlong rush to build the most of these new beer moths of the sea. What was at stake was the blockade and starvation of the vanquished. The German high seas fleet aimed to destroy a large enough part of the British Grand Fleet to allow it to break out to the Atlantic where it would effectively blockade the commerce and supplies Britain utterly relied on to survive, let alone fight. If that happened, Britain would be forced into submission. No wonder, then, that Winston Churchill said of the commander of the British Grand Fleet, Admiral Jellicoe, he is the only man on either side who could have lost the war in an afternoon. Churchill was right. This one battle, more than any other, would decide the outcome of World War I, and with it, the likelihood of a World War II. The future of the world rested on Jellicoe's shoulders. So welcome to this, the sixth episode of history's greatest naval battles, the Battle of Jutland. On the face of it, HMS Dreadnought gave Britain the technological lead any navy would dream of. But the reality was that so revolutionary was she that she effectively made every single other battleship in the world obsolete. So much so that they would now be dismissively called pre-Dreadnoughts. In other words, every nation's navy was reset to zero and Britain's hundreds of warships around the world now meant very little if any nation could build enough dreadnoughts to fight them. Dreadnought was head and shoulders above the rest. While pre-dreadnoughts had mixed batteries of 6, 8, 10 and 12-inch guns, on dreadnought every single gun was a 12-inch monster. She could hurl half-ton high-explosive shells 10 miles and their accuracy was eerie. She was fast too, 25 miles an hour fast, unimaginable for a battleship. And then, from 1911, what's known as super dreadnoughts hit the scenes, with 13, 14 and even 15-inch guns replacing the older 12-inch batteries. These ships were the most powerful weapons to have ever existed at the time, 
and both Britain and Germany began building them as fast as their shipyards could manage. Whoever held the edge would hold the ocean. By the time of Jutland, Britain's Grand Fleet boasted 28 of these new mighty battleships to Germany's 16, and they were backed up by more than 200 other warships. The enormity of the imminent battle wasn't lost on the men who were about to fight it. World War I naval warfare inspired different emotions in different men. A Royal Navy sailor, Louis West, said, We thought we'd wipe the Germans out, of course we did. No navy like the British Navy, you know. We fully expected there to be a good ding-dong battle, but it would all be over in a matter of hours. German Lieutenant Commander Dane felt the same. The knowledge that the British fleet was vastly superior to the German fleet didn't affect our morale at all. Everybody was agreed that the fleet as a whole, and every unit in it, would give a very good account of themselves when the day would come. Many, though, were more sombre. British teenager Alfred Freight joined up underage in 1913. His words were, While you were waiting for it, you was absolutely dead scared, dead scared. But once it started, it was fine, and you seemed to lose it all. But I know I've stood on the bridge sometimes and cried with being scared, and up at the top masthead. I've stood up there with these glasses to my eyes, frozen to death and crying. That's the sort of life it was in them days. These men, and a hundred thousand more, faced the huge guns and torpedoes of each other's fleets. And it all kicked off on the 31st of May. The battle itself was a seesaw affair, a toing and froing of luring, chasing, engaging and fleeing. The British weren't even sure a battle would take place, but having broken some of the German signals, knew that something was up and so sailed the Grand Fleet into the North Sea to head off any trouble. The fleet was split in two, the main force commanded by Jellicoe, and a smaller but powerful squadron under Admiral Beatty. It was all rather precautionary at this stage. The British even thought the main German high seas fleet was still in port. But they weren't. In fact, they were steaming into the North Sea at all speed. Their fleet was also split in two, the main force commanded by Admiral Scheer and, just like the British, a powerful decoy force under Admiral Hipper. Hipper knew that Beatty at least was coming, because a German U-boat had spotted them. He must have been rubbing his hands together in glee because Hipper's plan was to lure Beatty's vanguard into the path of the whole German fleet steaming up behind. Beatty's smaller squadron was more powerful than most navies at the time, with four Queen Elizabeth-class battleships, the most modern of the Royal Navy, and six battlecruisers. Battlecruisers had the guns of battleships, but sacrificed armour for speed. It was a formidable force in its own right, but if Hipper could draw it into the path of the main German fleet, it would be annihilated by overwhelming firepower. 
The first surprise of the day, though, was Hippers, as Beattie suddenly appeared sooner than expected. Beattie outranged Hipper, and his unexpected arrival could have spelled disaster for the Germans had he engaged. But for some reason, he didn't. Not for ten precious minutes. Instead, he continued to steam right ahead, closing the range with Hipper's fleet until he himself was now in range of the Germans. He'd been so intent on steaming ahead that he'd even left his four battleships behind hours earlier. It's possible that Beatty had intended to get around Hipper's squadron to block their route back to port. But those ships were the most powerful in the world at the time and would have made a critical difference to what happened next. The Germans opened fire, all while turning to the southeast towards Shear's main high seas fleet. Beatty took the bait and followed them, returning massive salvos at Hipper's ships. It became known as the Run to the South, as Beatty chased Hipper while exchanging hammer blows with him. Hipper was intentionally leading him into the jaws of death, and his plan was working. And things weren't going well for the British gunners either. Beatty's ships were still manoeuvring in the first moments of the clash, and on top of that, the wind was blowing towards Hipper, so that British funnel smoke obscured the Germans from British rangefinders. The upshot was that Beatty's squadron didn't hit a thing in the opening minutes of the battle, while Hipper's force drew first blood. The German SMS Moltke hit HMS Tiger nine times in 12 minutes, just one of three British battle cruisers hit. Beatty's own flagship Lion was hit next when a 12-inch shell from Lutzal obliterated one of her turrets and nearly caused her magazines to explode. It was only the quick actions of Major Francis Harvey who ordered the magazines to be flooded and sealed which saved her from what would have been a catastrophic explosion. But the same could not be said of HMS Indefatigable, as shells penetrated her armour, detonating in her magazines. A small first explosion was followed by a second almighty one, and the whole ship was violently internally rent. 22,000 tonnes of steel brutally buckled, and she sank within minutes, taking over a thousand men with her to the deep. Just 20 minutes later, it was HMS Queen Mary's turn to suffer disaster. Ganged up on by the German Derflinger and Seidlitz, her magazines too exploded. German commander von Hayes watched on and later described what he saw. A vivid red flame shot up from her forepart, then came an explosion forward, followed by a much heavier explosion amidships. Immediately afterwards, she blew up with a terrific explosion, the masts collapsing inwards and the smoke hiding everything. When it appeared the HMS Princess Royal had blown up too, Beatty is said to have famously retorted, there's something wrong with our bloody ships today. While all this was going on, a huge destroyer battle was raging between Beatty and Hipper's main lines, 
smaller guns firing and dozens of torpedoes surging through the water. Smoke from funnels and burning ships wreathed the seas. Guns of all sizes fired continuously. Terrible blasts of shells struck incessantly. It must have been terrifying. And now British eyes widened, hearts sank and mouths went dry as Admiral Shear's high seas fleet surged over the horizon, eager to wipe out Beatty's shrinking force. Beatty immediately ordered an about turn, spinning his force 180 degrees and steaming northward in a phase aptly called the run to the north. Now the tables had turned as Beatty baited Shear and Hipper, leading them on to Jellicoe's Grand Fleet rushing south. Thankfully for Beatty, his four formidable battleships had caught up with him and now acted as his rearguard, their huge guns pummeling the chasing Germans while they raced north at top speed. Shear didn't even know that Jellicoe's Grand Fleet was at sea, while Jellicoe did know what was coming towards him thanks to Beatty's information and the first ever use of a carrier-based seaplane for reconnaissance. He signalled to the Grand Fleet that the moment they had been waiting for for so long was finally imminent. Through smoke and mist, the two huge fleets converged, and almost the first Sheer knew of it was when Jellicoe was crossing his T. Suddenly emerging out of the smoke-ridden haze, Jellicoe's line of huge super-dreadnoughts crossed in front of Shear's columns, being able to bring every gun to bear on the German lines. Taken completely by surprise, Shear's fleet suddenly faced the massed firepower of the entire Grand Fleet. Now it was the Germans' turn to be savaged, with the Koenig, Grosserkurfürst, Markgraf, Kaiser, Helgoland and Derfling are all getting mauled. Eighteen of the British battleships simultaneously pounded a line of German battlecruisers, and nearly every single one received multiple devastating hits. Scheer swerved his entire fleet away, but that only served to take them into the teeth of another of Jellicoe's columns. Scheer himself said, It was now obvious that we were confronted by a large portion of the English fleet. The entire arc stretching from north to east was a sea of fire. The flash from the muzzles of the guns was seen distinctly through the mist and smoke on the horizon, although the ships themselves were not distinguishable. German destroyers and torpedo boats roared into the fight, firing hundreds of torpedoes in an effort to screen the main line of battleships from Jellicoe's murderous fire. For a while it worked, and Hipper's flagship, the Lutzau, destroyed HMS Invincible in the chaos. But she in turn was hit 24 times and finally sank. Joining the Lutzau at the bottom of the North Sea were the Frauenlob, Wiesbaden, Elbing, Pommern and Rostock, as well as several smaller ships. Before she went down though, the Wiesbaden had fired a torpedo at HMS Marlborough, which struck like a thunderbolt. A sailor, George Fox, was on board when it did. There was a terrific explosion, he said, and it simply lifted that ship up like a ball, 
and just bounced her up and down. You felt the ship gradually going further over and over and over, and everybody's faces turned pale. We wondered if we were going to be drowned in this little compartment. As it happened, the Marlborough did survive the torpedo and limped back to port for repairs. Jutland was essentially one huge slugging match of colossal naval artillery and sneaky deadly torpedoes. When Jellicoe had Shear's fleet caught in an inverted V, Shear decided it was time to get out and raced back south, covered all the while by a screen of torpedo-swarming destroyers and submarines. Jellicoe chose not to pursue, fearing that he would be led directly onto a line of U-boats or further German guns. He's since been criticised for not taking more decisive action to destroy the fleeing German fleet, but all he had to do was survive Jutland to win the strategic battle. In giving Scheer the opportunity to do further damage to his fleet in a chase into the unknown, he could have, in Churchill's words, lost the war in an afternoon. In purely tactical terms, Germany won at Jutland. They lost just 11 ships and 62,000 tonnes. The British, 14 ships and 113,000 tonnes. But the reality was that the Grand Fleet could afford losses like that, while the German High Seas Fleet could not. It never sailed again in force for a major confrontation with the Royal Navy. And that meant that Germany could not attack and disrupt Britain's vital shipping lanes with its surface fleet. It's this simple fact which makes Jutland a strategic victory for Britain, despite its tactical defeat or at best, inconclusive draw. It had massive ramifications for the outcome of World War I. As a result of Britain's continuing naval blockade, by 1916, Germany's imports of vital food and industrial raw materials had fallen by 55%, having a catastrophic effect on its ability to sustain an effective long-term war effort. And crucially, Jutland meant that Germany had to rely on unrestricted submarine warfare to attack Britain's shipping. And that meant the sinking of an increasing number of American ships. The Germans knew this would eventually lead to the US joining the war, and so sent the infamous Zimmermann telegram to Mexico, proposing a military alliance. The British intercepted it, and together with the U-base attacks on American ships, provoked President Woodrow Wilson to declare war on Germany. The end was nigh. But let's take a moment to consider what might have been had the Germans won at Jutland, and won big. The High Seas fleet would have broken out to the Atlantic, where, unmolested by a savaged Royal Navy, it would have mauled Britain's critical flow of food and raw materials. Even more reliant on these imports than Germany, Britain would have been forced to sue for peace. Now there's no Britain supporting France on the Western Front, and stretched even more thinly than they already were, the French army mutinies of 1917 would have been made even worse. 
as Germany would have had no need to resort to unrestricted submarine warfare or the Zimmermann telegram. The United States probably would have stayed out of the war altogether. And then, of course, the Russian Revolution occurs, and she too is out of the war by March 1918. Now, the major 1918 German spring offensive is against just the exhausted French, assuming their army hadn't already rebelled in full and forced its government to surrender. Either way, the Germans would have steamrolled their way into Paris. Germany wins World War I. No Treaty of Versailles, no occupation of the Rhineland or Sudetenland, no German reparations, no Weimar Republic with its soaring hyperinflation, no seething public discontent or national humiliation for a certain Adolf Hitler and Nazi ideology to rise into in the 1930s. In other words, the Battle of Jutland changed the course of World War I and allowed the Allied victory to sow some of the seeds of World War II. Jutland's ripples travelled far into the future. You're still feeling those ripples today. Join us next time for the final episode of History's Greatest Naval Battles, for the clash which turned the tide of World War II's Pacific War. Japan had been busy in the six months following its shock attack on Pearl Harbor, expanding its empire into the Philippines, Malaya, Singapore and the Dutch East Indies. But the Japanese knew that they needed to eradicate the threat of American aircraft carriers if they were to hold their new empire, let alone continue growing it. So Admiral Yamamoto, the architect of the Pearl Harbor attack, drafted a plan to lure the Americans to the tiny islands of Midway, where he would ambush and destroy them completely. From there, it's possible Hawaii would have been invaded and used as a shield against further American threats to its Asia-Pacific empire. But the Americans had broken the Japanese codes and knew they were coming. It was set to be an incredible collision of a new style of naval warfare when thousands of carrier-borne aircraft fought each other and the mighty ships of the ocean. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.